Welcome to the Retaining Wit podcast. This is Josie Haynes. We're taking a quick break between seasons and wanted to share with you one of our best of episodes from when we first launched. I hope you enjoy and we'll be back in March with new guests and content focused on empowering women to thrive in tech. Welcome to the Retaining Wit podcast. I'm Josie Haynes. And I'm Jordana Kwok. This show tackles the challenges of keeping women in tech. Each month, we invite a guest to talk to us about their experiences in the industry and to learn what it'll take to create a workplace where women will thrive. Today on Retaining Wit, we are very excited to be interviewing Karen Catlin, a leadership coach and diversity advocate. After spending 25 years in technology, working as VP of Engineering at Macromedia and Adobe, she witnessed a decline of women working in tech and wanted to do something about it. Today, Karen coaches women to be stronger leaders and men to be better allies. She recently published a book called Better Allies, which focuses on how we can all be better allies to underrepresented groups, including women. Thank you, Karen, for joining us today. Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. So before we jump into topics around retaining women in tech, we're wondering how you got your start in the tech industry. Yes. So as you know from the introduction, I worked in tech for 25 years. So my start in tech was a long time ago. And it's an interesting story. Um, so I was a senior in high school, and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to study in college. And I remember my dad at the time showing me an issue of Money magazine. And on the cover, the title, the cover story was all about these women who had gotten computer science degrees in college and then had gone on to start these amazing careers. And frankly, they were earning more money than I could have even imagined, right? So I was attracted because I came from a very modest background. I was attracted to the high salary. And I was like intrigued, like, what is this thing called computer science? And my dad, as he showed me this article, said, you know, Karen, you are always making things. You're a crafter, you're sewer, you're a knitter, and you love puzzles, and you're really good at math. So maybe you want to combine all of those things, and you might enjoy making software. And I said, okay, this sounds pretty interesting. And it looks like there's a good career ahead of me if I study this. So I went to college saying, I'm going to study computer science. Um, but the interesting thing about this um, is that I had never touched a computer before that point. And um, first of all, you have to realize that the time, it was 1981. That's the year I graduated from high school. Our high school did not have any computers in it. Our, uh, the small businesses I worked at after school did not have computers. So it wasn't that surprising that at that point in history, I had never touched a computer. But to decide to study computer science uh, without ever having touched a computer, like without ever having written my first Hello World app, you know, I, I still don't know what I was thinking. But that's what I did. And fortunately, it all worked out. And I absolutely loved um, studying computer science and making software. That's an awesome story. I I love hearing about, you know, how different people get started in the industry. And it's great hearing you being brave and just jumping right in. After you graduated from college, what were some of the biggest challenges that you or even others, you know, have faced over the years? And have you seen that change more recently? Yeah. And, and so my challenges, are, do you mean like technology challenges or? 
other like is there it's a, it's a very broad question so i wonder if you have a specific angle that you're interested in exploring yeah we were mostly interested about challenges around staying in the tech industry especially for women yeah sure sure um and i have to admit you know i'm one of these people who decided to step back from being in tech myself to helping women as well as other underrepresented people be successful so i am very well aware of the challenges you know so the interesting thing is so i started my career in 1985 and that year was kind of a peak year for women getting computer science degrees and going into tech. That year, 1985, according to the U.S. Um, uh, statistics about the, from the U.S. Department of Education, sorry, those statistics, that year was the peak year in that 37% of all of the computer science and information sciences degrees that year went to women. So it's not 50-50, but it was 37% a lot of women. And so my recollection of like college classes and also my early jobs in my career, there were a lot of women around and it wasn't as male dominated as we have today. And now, of course, what's happened since then is computer science has kind of exploded, especially in recent years. And many more men are studying that than women. In fact, I, uh, I've tracked these statistics from the U.S. Department of Education, and the numbers of women studying computer science, not only did it decline as a percentage to a low point of about 17%, but it all, the overall numbers also dropped in the years after I got my degree. And we're starting to see it climb back up again, and I think a lot of that is due to the amazing work by people in all sorts of different organizations encouraging young women, girls to study CS, to take that AP computer science class in high school, to pursue the robotics after school clubs, whatever it is. There's so much emphasis on the importance of diversity in the tech industry that I think we are encouraging our young women to explore this if it's something that they think they'd be interested in. And we're starting to see the numbers climb back up, but it certainly is not where it was back at 1985 when I got my degree. So I'll just say early in my career, I really didn't feel that there was a lot of um, sexism. Yeah, there was some, but not a lot. I felt like I was surrounded by coworkers who were very supportive of anyone who could do their job, including myself, and certainly managers who saw what I could do and and sponsored me to do even more of that. So I, I just want to point that out because I think there's hope in that story, I, I think. I, I think there's hope in that story and that it used to be a lot better and I think we can get there again. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how long the two of you have been in tech, but how does that compare to your experience? So I've been in tech for 20 years and I do think definitely at the beginning of my career, I saw some more women and definitely in certain roles. As I shifted, when I worked in gaming, there were less women. And actually, the least women I saw was actually at Apple. I was actually the first female engineering manager at Siri, and the numbers were just very low. Mm. Yeah, I got my start probably 15 years ago in the mobile industry. So that was really nascent at the time. Mm -hmm. When I think back to my university graduating class, it was 10% women. So the start of my career was already at the low point, I would say. 
Yeah. Yes, you've seen different things. Well, and this is one of the reasons I, well, let me back up. I started coaching my coaching practice originally just to help women in tech in whatever kind of role they're in, not just engineering roles, but any role, because I wanted to help women grow their career and stay in tech if that's where they wanted to be. And, uh, you know, it's such a theme of your podcast. Um, And I still do that. I still coach. Most of my clients are women who want to stay in tech and want to grow their careers. But I soon realized after I started my coaching practice, and I've been doing this about six years now, I soon realized that even if I were like the most amazing coach on the planet, which I don't think I am, but even if I were, and even if I was, you know, just really just excelled at helping my clients lean into their careers and grow their careers, they still were facing this uphill battle because they were working in companies that were male dominated, some better than others in terms of supporting um, gender diversity and other kinds of diversity, but they were still in companies that were not the meritocracies that I think most companies want to be and claim to be. Because, you know, maybe there would be like, you know, 30, 35% women across the company in terms of just the ratio of the demographics of the employee base. But as that, as you looked at the higher levels of leadership, that number decreased dramatically. So mostly it was men getting ahead in their careers at these companies. And it was hard, even for my women who are so talented, my clients, they're so talented and they still are facing this uphill battle. And that's why I started exploring, well, Instead of just trying to fix the woman, let's start fixing the men, so to speak, uh, with all due respect to the men who might be listening. But there's a role for every man who's working in tech to create a more inclusive workplace on his work team, in his larger group, at his company. Um, and that's, that's really why I started paying attention to this whole concept of allyship and what allies can do to create more inclusive workplaces. So... What are some pieces of advice that you would give allies who are interested in helping support women and other underrepresented individuals in tech? So, for instance, I've been trying to start, you know, mentoring programs at Tile, which have been pretty successful, but I'd love to hear some other pieces of advice. Yes. Um, and my book is full of them. So I'll, I'll share a couple. And I would love if people want even more that they can check out my book. I hope you don't mind me pitching that. Oh, of course. <laughs> um, so mentoring programs are such a great opportunity for people to, you know, pass on their advice, pass on their experience to someone who hasn't had that, you know, the same amount of experience as them. I love mentoring programs. Yet I will add, and maybe you've set this up at tile so it's not uh, falling into this trap, but there is a trap and there's research showing that most of us, when we mentor other people, we mentor people who remind us of our younger self. We mentor people of the same race and the same gender and have other things in common with us. So if we are looking at our leadership at most of our tech companies being white men, and if they are mentoring people mostly like themselves, other white men, it's going to not have the disruptive effect I think that we want to have where we're really supporting and shoring up women as well as other members of under, underrepresented groups. So if, if you are doing mentoring, my advice is mentor someone who doesn't look like you, you know, at a a very broad brushstroke. Mentor someone who's different from you. Don't have a mini-me protege, a mini-me mentee. So that's that's one piece of advice. And and Josie, with all due respect, 
I, maybe your, your program at Tile is doing exactly that, which I applaud you for if that's the case. But for people out there listening, look out for that trap and don't fall into it. Another thing is that for allies is to pay attention to your meetings. And meetings are just, I mention them because we do so much work in tech or, you know, that's centered in meetings, whether it's daily stand-ups or one-on-ones or larger group meetings, brainstorming sessions, project planning sessions, whatever it might be. Pay attention to what's happening in meetings. And the things that may be happening in your meetings can be very exclusive to people who are from these underrepresented groups. Um, Things like, for example, interruptions. There is research showing that men interrupt women much more than the reverse. And um, if a woman is constantly getting interrupted and not being able to get her point across, she'll tend to step back and not even participate in the rest of that meeting or in future meetings. So look out for interruptions. And if you see them happening, redirect the conversation back to, you know, I want to hear, Jordana was making a great point. I'd like to hear her finish it. You know, something like that. Just like redirect it. Another thing that happens in our meetings is something, and I talk about in my book called bro appropriation, where a woman might say something or a person from another underrepresented group, they may say something and it kind of falls flat. Maybe it wasn't the right time. Maybe they didn't position that idea very well. But then later on in the same meeting, a man typically will say the same exact thing and kind of get all the credit and kind of appropriate that idea as their own. So that's another thing to be on the lookout for. And when you see something like that happen, again, an ally can simply step in, raise their hand, whatever, and say something like, hey, I see you agree with the point that May was making earlier and give May some credit, right? So there are things in in our meetings, as I said, that can be non-inclusive. Gosh, I could just keep going on. Do you want me to like maybe do one one or two more of these sort of situations and settings? Is this helpful? Yeah. Or or we can hop on to, you know, a little bit of a question around hiring. Yeah. I think that would be an interesting thing to talk about, especially being a hiring manager. There are many ways that we're thinking about uh, increasing diversity. Yes. And um, so it's a great uh, overlap there, definitely. And our hiring. So I don't know about you, but I, when I was hiring and was creating, you know, I had to create a new job description, new, open a new rec for an employee, I typically would find the last job description that I made and bring it up, you know, copy it, and then start adding to it, right? adding new things and not even being very mindful of, well, if everything I needed the last time for that, that kind of role is in there, I probably still need all of that. And I need a few new things to meet the new business needs. And before we know it, we have these job descriptions that just go on and on and on and on and on. And frankly, instead, we need to take a close look at those job descriptions and ask ourselves, well, we're saying here, you know, we need four to six years of JavaScript experience. But If a candidate that was otherwise ideal came along and only had a year of JavaScript experience, would we hire them? And if the answer is yes, then we should go back and like remove the number of years of experience that we're expecting for that. Or if we are saying, you know, uh, you know, computer science or EE degree required, but in, in reality, if the best candidate came along and like dropped out of Stanford or some other school and we still you know, would think about hiring them even though they didn't have that degree, then we should hold ourselves accountable and take it off of the job description. And the reason I think, and, and my advice actually, is to try to get your job descriptions down to just five requirements. 
of what you're looking for. And five isn't a magic number, but it's just like the discipline of trying to get it down to just the bare minimum. The framework of what you need is a hard thing to do, but what you do by getting it to a very simple, the essence of what you're looking for is you'll get more people applying for the job. You'll get more people especially women and underrepresented minorities, applying for the job because there is so much research that has been conducted and proven over and over again that women apply for jobs when we know we can do the job, when we've already done it, and that we can go into that interview feeling very confident, like I have done everything on that list of requirements and I'm prepared for this interview, I can do this. Whereas our male counterparts might be a little bit more um, confident in their skills and think, well, you know, if I've only, I've done like half or 60% of all the things they're looking for, I can learn everything else. Of course, they're going to want me. I'm so, you know, I'm so awesome. So I'm going to go into that interview. I'm going to apply for that job regardless of having everything they're looking for. So that is just one thing I, I recommend. And if you're not already doing this, maybe you are because it's becoming an emerging best practice, I feel. Make sure that you are having objective criteria that you are going to use for every single candidate and not decide, well, yeah, we were evaluating them on these five or six aspects, but there's something about this candidate I just can't put my finger on. I just don't think they'd be successful here. I think we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't pursue making them an offer. And that, my friends, is an example of how bias can come into the discussions around. I just can't put my finger on it. I don't think they'd be successful. A few years ago, I'd say this was called the, I just can't imagine grabbing a beer with them after work kind of test. And it's full of bias. It's full of bias because it's just like this person isn't someone I'd want to hang out with. They're not like me. Something's going on there. So again, getting back to the best practice of have objective criteria that you are going to evaluate every candidate on. And ideally, use the same interview questions as well so that you can get objective results from the interviews, not subjective ones. Can I tell you a story about a time where this wasn't done and I was being interviewed? Oh, of course. Yeah, okay. So years and years ago, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I moved here with my partner, Tim. And Tim and I, at that point in our career, had pretty much identical resumes. We had gone to the same school, got the same degree, and had started our career working at the same research institute. And so pretty much our, our resumes were almost interchangeable. They were, they were very identical. And when we moved to Silicon Valley and started looking for jobs, we were interested in the same companies, given our our background being so similar. And there was one day when we both went to interview at a company for software engineering role, and we were seated in side-by-side conference rooms. And it was one of those like really exhausting all-day interviews where someone from the interview team would interview Tim and then walk a couple feet into my room and then interview me and vice versa. Okay, and this went on all day. Well, in our car driving back to our hotel that day after these the, all these interviews i said to tim i was like so how'd it go and he was like oh my gosh that was the hardest interview i've ever been through they asked such tough questions you know i think i did okay but it was really hard i'm exhausted and i was like huh because that was the easiest interview i've ever been through they did not ask me tough questions at all and it's not because tim is not as smart as me by any means i have i respect him technically so much it's more that they they asked me different questions they asked me easier questions in fact 
in just the few steps they took from Tim's conference room over to my conference room, they lowered the bar and assumed that I wasn't going to be able to answer the tough technical questions and started asking me very superficial, easy ones. And so it's rare that we have one of these A-B tests or something going on at the same moment, but I know it happened that day. And I'll tell you, we both got offers from, from that company, but I did not accept mine because there was no way I was going to join a company that didn't respect me enough during the interview process to think I had technical chops and that they could ask me tough questions. Like, what would it have been like for me to go work there? Um, so I said no, and I fortunately had another job offer. It wasn't, it wasn't a problem there, but I went on to have a much better job that I really felt like I thrived at. So maybe that's enough about interviewing. Hopefully that helps answer some questions, Jordana, or give you some ideas of things you can be doing. Yeah, those are some wonderful tips. Thank you so much for sharing. So again, speaking to some of the challenges of keeping women in tech, one of the things that I've observed in the past is that some women can feel less inclined to support other women because they feel there can only ever be one at the table, right? They only ever see one at the table if there is one up above them. What would you say to women who find themselves thinking this? Yeah. and. I, I am not surprised that you've seen this, Josie. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I also want to paint a different picture in that I feel I haven't seen it. I have, by contrast, seen women who have been so supportive of other women in, in a way of like, you know, holding out their hand behind them and pulling other women along. So I have seen like the opposite and it's so beautiful when it happens. And I think part of that is I get involved with a lot of women's groups, I'll call it. I have attended a lot of girl geek dinners. I go to the Grace Hopper celebration every year. I'm a member of the Women's Club of Silicon Valley. I started the Women's ERG at Adobe. And my point is that there's so many opportunities, and this is the advice to women who are feeling that they might be in this situation. There's so many places and groups that have formed that are all about women helping women, hashtag women helping women. And those places are absolutely just like joys to be a part of because the women are all really interested in sharing their advice, sharing their experience, and collectively learning together how to grow careers. So seek out a women's group that you can be a part of. Also, you know, online forums are another great place. You know, uh, Slack channels for women working in tech, for example, it doesn't just have to be in person. And, you know, the thing that's frustrating to me about this mindset, whether it is women saying there only can be one, and so I'm not going to help other people, um, other women, or if it's white men thinking, why do I care about diversity? Because that's just going to mean that I'm not going to get the promotion because it's going to go to you know, a member of an underrepresented group instead of me. This mindset of, it's called a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And I think that it's so much better to assume that as we welcome people from all sorts of different backgrounds and genders into our companies and into our projects that we're working on, as we welcome all these people from diverse backgrounds, the pie is just going to get bigger. The pie being the amount of um, you know, the challenges that we can take on, the growth we can have with the projects we're delivering, the, um, you know, the stock price, if we're thinking at, it at that level. The pie can just keep getting bigger and bigger. And so while there are more people getting a slice of that pie, each slice is actually bigger than if you had a very fixed mindset and kept it small. 
in, and there's a wonderful um, book by Liz Wiseman called Multipliers that is really explores all of this, um, this concept of fixed mindsets versus growth mindsets. And so if people want to understand this a little bit more, that would, that'd be a great resource to check out. Yeah, I actually recently read that book a couple months back, and I completely agree. It's an amazing resource. Um, it's one I'm trying to share internally uh, at Tile now. Nice. A lot of times, um, and I've definitely felt this, we're the only woman in the room. So what is some, and I mean, you just gave some great advice of, you know, joining women's communities, which I think is totally key. But what are some other pieces of advice you might give women who are struggling with that? Yes. Another thing I do and coach my clients on, and I've co-authored a book with my friend Purnima Vijay Shankar on, is public speaking. And Purnima and I firmly believe that public speaking is like this multivitamin for your career. It's a multivitamin for your career because it has so many benefits in terms of you becoming more visible about your expertise or your project or your leadership or whatever it is, but you become more visible when you speak in public, as well as being able to attract talent if you're speaking externally and get support for ideas that you might be trying to push forward internally, you know, get stakeholder support by um, feeling confident and being able to communicate your ideas and speak up. And so if people aren't already doing this and feeling very comfortable with giving project updates, pitching ideas, um, getting stakeholder support and so forth, I think that taking the initiative to get some public speaking training or to start just doing more of it can really have amazing impact on someone's career. So that would be one thing. I'll also say, and this gets back to the concept of allyship, is that if you are feeling like disrespected or ignored or interrupted, as, I, as we were talking about before, as the only woman in the room, is think about engaging an ally, actually reaching out to someone that you know who is going to those same meetings or, you know, sitting next to you in the workplace or something and engaging them and, and saying, you know, this is my experience and this is what's going on and I could really use some help here and encourage that person to speak up on your behalf. You know, when we start saying, especially for the only in the room, like, I don't think it's fair that I always have to take the meeting minutes when we get together. Yeah, we come across as maybe a little whiny at times or demanding or even the B word. And it's so much more powerful if there is a male colleague who says, you know, I don't think it's fair that Karen's always taking the meeting minutes. I think we should rotate that responsibility. It becomes it's not me complaining anymore. It's someone else just pointing out an inequity. So I really encourage people, if they are the only in the room and they want to get some support, is, as I said, tap, tap into someone and ask them, can you step up a little bit and help me out here? Yeah, I've actually had personal experience being the only woman engineer on the team and really just finding who might be that one ally I can lean on. And that has helped tremendously. Yes, yes, definitely. You know, I was talking to someone, um, engineer who's like in her first job out of college. She graduated less than a year ago and she's a back-end engineer. She loves back-end engineering. She just, I mean, it's, it's her jam. And she just got a new boss who came in between her last boss and herself now. So there's a new boss that's been um, hired from outside and inserted. And he basically decided we need actually one less back-end engineer, one more front-end engineer. And he talked to this, this woman and said, you know, I want you to be the front-end engineer. And she was shocked. She like, what do you mean? I'm a back-end engineer. Why would you expect that I would want to do front-end engineering? And 
frankly, I think that there's a bias that front-end engineering is easier, and so therefore maybe it's better for women or boot camp grads or whatever, right? It's just like we have a bias that it's a little bit easier to be a front-end engineer. And so she was really upset about this. So she ended up engaging the most senior engineer on the team, another man, and just asked him, this is going on, and what do you think about that, and could you advocate for me, basically, and point out how my performance has been as a back-end engineer and help me out here. So it shows up in, in all sorts of different ways. I'll also mention I was talking to a client who was what the one woman on a five- or six-person engineering team, and they were hiring a few more people, and it got to the point, like, we need a project manager for all of this. And her boss looked at her the only woman. And she has no, pro- like, she's, that's not her jam. That's not what she's good at. She's an engineer. And again, it was, it just felt like bias screaming loud and clear. Like this is a bias situation, assuming that the one woman in the room, because women tend to be multitaskers, of course, they're going to be great project managers. So let's have her move off of engineering. She pushed back. Everything was fine. But these things happen. Yeah. I, I find that it also happens where technical women in particular get pushed out of perhaps their engineering roles into, like you said, you know, project management, mm-hmm. product management, mm-hmm. or even people management. It's fine if that's what they want to be doing, but it's not fine if they feel like they've been forced out. Yeah. Something that has definitely happened to me in the past along these lines is I was the engineering manager and there was a male project manager. But whenever we'd walk into meetings, they always assumed he was the engineering manager and (laughs) I was the project manager multiple times. Yes. Yes. Again, just the bias. I hear so many stories like that, Josie. Oh my gosh. Or I I was talking to a a CEO of a startup who has a technical product with an API. And whenever he went to talk to potential customers to, you know, pitch their their product, he always brought in along a sales engineer who was a woman because she was the best one. And inevitably the client would be the potential customer would be asking about like some of the details around the API. And he was like, you have to ask Sue, you know, the sales engineer, you have to ask Sue. She's the expert in the API. I can't answer your question. And it happened over and over and over again. We can't get too upset that these biases exist because we all have biases. We're born with them. It's how we've been raised. I think we just, though, have to acknowledge that they happen and look for opportunities to push back on them and disrupt the biases that are in play. Yeah, I think that is a great way to think about it. So now as we're kind of wrapping up, um, we always want to leave everybody with like one key takeaway. So you gave us lots of really great nuggets, but is there one key item you'd like to share with the audience? Yes. So if you want to stay in tech, because this is what you enjoy doing in whatever role you are, stay in tech, please. If it's not working out at your current company and you're, you've tried the various things we've talked about in terms of engaging allies and finding a women's group you can belong to and get support from, if it's not working out, go somewhere else. There is such a talent shortfall in tech right now across the United States, probably in other geographies as well. But we have record low unemployment and certainly in tech that manifests itself even more and that we just don't have enough skilled workers. So there should be jobs out there for you if your current culture is not, you know, supporting you, is not feeling like a place you can be successful. But stay in tech. Don't assume you have to drop out because this isn't the place for you. It could be the place for you just at another company. Thank you. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's a great advice for everybody. And thank you so much, Karen, for taking the time to chat with us today. 
Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was so great talking. Thanks for listening to the Retaining Wit podcast. You can keep up with our latest episodes at retainingwit.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast shows.